Hello humans, this is episode 24 of your Power Report and I am Dan Kamiyama. This is a show that believes a lot of the different political issues out there are connected and that you can't solve any one of them without touching or interacting with the others. Uh, that's how systemic issues work. And one of the best ways I think you can illustrate this is with the immigration issue. Um, a debate that has been so thoroughly destroyed by both major political parties that I think it is due for a major reimagining. Republican presidents have tended to use immigration as a way to pit races against one another, and Democrats take Republican policies and add new layers of loopholes and complications that don't address the roots of the problem and oftentimes uh, sow the same racist and classist levels of dissent within everyday people who live in the United States. Our immigration crisis sits at the intersection between our foreign policy, our economic system, and as I mentioned earlier, racism and classism. And so I really wanted to speak to someone who could really talk about all these different aspects in play at once. So thankfully I was able to find... Karina Moreno. I'm an associate professor of urban policy at Hunter College with the City University of New York, so CUNY. I am originally from Mexico, um, and so I study and I write about immigration. You can find her on Twitter at Kari in Brooklyn, that is K-A-R-Y in Brooklyn, K-A-R-Y in Brooklyn. It'll be in the description to this video or podcast, depending on how you're consuming this, and you can also find a link to her Jackman article where she wrote in detail about Joe Biden's immigration policies. But we're going to talk about a lot of those right now. Before we begin, make sure you are subscribed to Dan from the Internet on YouTube so you get all the Power Report clips that are going to be coming out soon. And make sure you're subscribed to Power Report on wherever you're listening to podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate that. Anyways, here's the interview. So Karina, thank you very much for joining me on PowerPoint today. And I wanted to kind of get into where you started with your piece in Jacobin, where you went through Joe Biden's immigration uh, proposals and policies. You know, um, kind of we were talking a bit before we started about how, you know, it's the first hundred days, <laughs> uh, all the progressives were said right. during the election that all you need to do is just wait for to get Joe Biden elected in the first 100 days, we'll get things done, we'll act decisively on, decisively on immigration. And especially in the early days of things, there's been a lot of back and forth and pressure, which at least I'm happy to see as a leftist, of making sure that uh, there are no sacred uh, members of the Democratic Party from Joe Biden all the way down to even Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to making sure that there's accountability for the Democratic Party and making sure that um, the immigration issue at the southern border is like properly address in a humane way, because right now for the past four years, at least, it hasn't been handled in a, in a good way. So I guess from there to begin with, as you kind of did in the article, mm -hmm. what are some of the things that are promising that the Biden administration at least claims it's going to propose here that they're talking about? So they've put, they've put the proposal um, forward, right? I think it shows... Um, I think it says something that he's that the administration is willing to use some political capital and and introduce this very early on. Um, 
there are a few things that are quite different. There are a few uh, items that are that are first that have not um, that have not been in previous immigration reforms um, proposals. Sorry. Uh, so let's see. We can talk about the first. It's the first time that they mention in the bill climate change and looking at like how weather and and climate is going to force migration flows right either to the U.S. or, or to other countries, but sort of to making a point to prepare for that and to acknowledge the reality that that's inevitable and that'll be happening. So um, that's important. The pot, what, okay. The main positive for me would, would be the, the budgeting. Usually every year, Homeland Security and ICE and all of this for, for national security, which, which includes the border, they get an obscene amount of, of, of money, of funding. Um, and that's been incremental from the start. So interesting that they mentioned like uh, pulling some of that funding and, and using it in, in other ways. Yeah, that's, to me, that, that's very a positive step that it seems like from the talk, and there's a criticism of the Democratic Party doing this, I'm not going to layer myself into that much just to begin with, but there is a talk to be had that the Democratic Party, at least Joe Biden, is speaking in a truer way about these things now, in the sense that um, they're looking at the underlying issues and they're showing that they're beginning to look at some of the underlying structural issues that um, face immigration mm-hmm. or like our issues within immigration. Um for example, I was wondering if you could, for a moment, explain um, lawful prospective immigrant immigrant status and how that can gonna play a role under this proposal potentially. So, what does the bill propose? It propose proposes a way to earn um, to earn so not citizenship. You, it's like eight years where you are compliant and you go along with different status. And um, if at the end of the eight years, you are uh, healthy and good and okay and happy and want to remain in the U.S., you can apply for citizenship at that point. So LPI status um, is a, is a initial part, right? Like is is the first part of that, of that trajectory to earn uh, legalized status, it lasts for six years. You can travel in and out of the U.S. You can work. You can go to school. Uh, so you can do a, pretty much everything except vote. But after that, you get from, from there, it's like levels. From there, you move on to being able to apply for a green card. And then at the end of the year, at the end of the green card, then you can apply to become a citizen. Um, and again, so to get to that point is eight years. Eight years. That's, uh, it seems to be a lot. Cause I remember during the Bush administration and cause a lot of these things end up traveling through administrations. There, so there was much talk about this pathway to citizenship and some of the complaints, um, mm-hmm. Republicans coming at it from more of a, oh, these people are skipping the line, so to speak, and Democrats coming out of it as, or spiel from the left saying that, oh, this is just sort of like this endless 
kicking the can down the road measure to gain these people like proper legal protections and status. Um, this seems to me like on the one hand, you're giving people a few more protections, a few more things they can do um, as uh, members, members contributing to society in the United States in this way. But it stops short of giving them full citizenship protections by creating this sort of different status that they set in for eight years while they're still waiting for um, our citizenship processing mess to be kind of solved and handled mm-hmm. out. That's kind of the gist of it. Yes. Yes. You have to pay taxes. You have to, I mean, if you have more than two misdemeanors, you're not eligible. So the whole time I feel is, is sort of like, like parole almost where should different um, unfortunate incidents happen with police and, and so forth with the IRS, like all of these things can make you ineligible since the whole, the whole system works with, with such discretion and they have so much power. Um, so yeah, it's essentially live here, work here, pay taxes here, but you have no political, like you don't have any way of, of participating in, in the political process. Yeah, which was definitely, it was um, one pressing point as the Republican Party saying, oh, look, the Democrats are getting these illegals to vote. I mean, never mind that being um, a ridiculous statement and the fact that we checked and there is very little um, voting irregularities from this election, never mind the Republican Party getting a lot of its fundraising off the idea that that, uh, there was some sort of misdeed doing with the election. But I think it even goes to this idea that... um, there's a lot of charge rhetoric, illegal, alien, all these different things that even mm-hmm. this bill kind of targets to address and saying, hey, we're going to use the term non-citizen. We're going to start to try to take out some of that uh, really charged rhetoric that is, let's be honest, been used in large part by the Republican Party over the past 20, 30 years um, in creating this demonization of people who are coming into the nation of immigrants uh, from our southern border. Right. Right. And I mean... You just said it so perfectly because, yes, this is a country of immigrants, but when they say that, they are referring to a particular type of, of immigrants, right? That it comes from over across the Atlantic Ocean and is a white person, um, it's an English speaking person. So all of that rhetoric is, is so separate, it is so far away from any conversation that has to do with migrants and asylum seekers through the, you know, on the Southern border with Mexico. And I also, I say this as, uh, when I came, when I first came to the U S I was undocumented and I think it's a, it's like too little, too late for me, but I was happy to see that change in the wording. Um, I think it would make, I, I mean, I think, since mine says like illegal alien, I think you internalize that and and that's not a nice thing. I think having a, a different language is, is a plus. Some some people will will, you know, be cynical and, and critique it and say that it's just a gesture and that it's not enough. I I don't think that it that in itself is enough, but I do think that language matters. 
yeah, language isn't everything, but language matters. There's a tone that can be set by just saying like, hey, at a bare minimum, we're going to treat this issue with an aspect of humanization. And I think with that humanization comes with uh, acknowledging that these issues aren't fully black and white and that there is some depth in the here. And so I do want to pick up where we were coming back to just earlier before we defined the um, LPI or lawful prospective immigrant status, because I think that's going to be important for the rest of this conversation. But what are some of the Mm -hmm. structural aspects uh, behind immigration? This isn't just... um, family decides all of a sudden that, oh, America's a richer country, so I'm going to go risk everything and possibly uh, go into violent situations, lose my loved ones, do all of this to try to get my chance, the American dream, as I think um, there's a media apparatus that likes to tell people that kind of lie. But unfortunately, that has just kind of become a base level of ignorance in the country. So in in the interest of giving people information to uh, combat that kind of weird misdeed, through the efforts of this bill, what are some of those structural measures that this bill at least tries to address? So, okay, great question. A lot of the bill focuses on asylum seekers from America. So the United States has destabilized. Uh, it, it's mainly El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. You know, during the... 80s, you have um, you have U.S. interventions that come in and and, and, and like support uh, undemocratic processes to to put a leader in, in place. Um, I think that's sort of like circling around now, right? Like the the effect of of intervening and like meddling in in these countries just grew corruption, grew. Um, the use of of organized crime of, of different you know criminal networks and it's so okay the the proposal at the very at the center it it, it talks about um, root causes of migration right so I think there's a continuity between the Trump administration and, and the Biden administration well and Obama too but the intention is to try to help, but keep them in, in their home countries, like keep them from approaching, from like making it to the border. Because once they're at the border, you're not supposed to, like it's supposed to be uh, against the law, like it's supposed to be against the constitution to allow, uh, to allow a person to apply for asylum. Trump changed all of that. So Trump told just said like no you have to stay on the other side of the border on the mexican side and so you had a a group of people that set up tents and and were were waiting for an opportunity um and didn't know where to move and like where to go and this was still like uh, as the pandemic is happening so just awful conditions so the Biden administration comes in, they are proposing having asylum seekers begin the process of petitioning for asylum in their home country. So it's, it's to me, that says something very, very loudly or, or my, you know, what my interpretation is, is that there's very little difference in the intention between Trump and Biden. Mm. 
And it, it might be even it might be even worse because when Biden was vice president, he was in charge of like working with the C, the three same countries, and um, he, each country was getting like seven hundred fifty million dollars a month. And this money was supposed to go to like building infrastructure, to like jobs, you know, like the different material conditions that will help people be be safe and and sort of uplift and and empower these these countries. The money didn't do anything. So it's kind of sad that it's the same person and the first time like. No, it's been enough time now that we know that that money did not make any, did not have any real in, uh, impact. And so now Biden has set aside like $4 billion for the same thing. And, and you know, they, the proposal says like after school programs, like different, very, very local uh, programs and, and and that's what we've, they've tried that before and it, and it didn't work. So. Yeah. It seems like a very neoliberal approach to, we're going to do these hyper-targeted local programs that reach out to people and improve conditions there. And we're going to just throw money at the problem. And like, to, to be fair, this is a pro, uh, thing that when I entered into college and I wanted to kind of study uh, politics and economics and the intersections of the two, I really wanted to kind of get a sense of like how, economics could be used as a tool for empowerment for um, countries that are developing or that have faced a lot of economic injustice over history to be able to uh, empower themselves economically. And I still have a lot of that interest, mm -hmm. but what I've found over time is that a lot of those uh, attempts that have been made to do that kind of thing um, in the broad concept of development economics and that broad kind of uh, political dogma. A lot of attempts at development economics have just been throwing, uh, well, let's be real about here, uh, rich Western European countries and America throwing piles of mm -hmm. money into countries that they've ravaged with not a lot of sense or uh, determination or desire or accountability as to where that money goes. And none of it really addresses the key yeah. problem. It just like kind of makes the people who are distributing the money feel happy and content with what they're doing. When in reality, it's just kind of kicking the problem away. I just, just to get at something you're really kind of getting at here is Trump's idea was um, deterrence. That was his strategy with uh, the border, was to make sure that we made uh, the immigration process coming to the southern border so terrible, so deadly, so dangerous, that people just wouldn't go through mm -hmm. the process at all. Now Biden's basically saying, right. and correct me if I'm wrong here, no, 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 no. come on, man, come on, man. Oh, we still want to get people to immigrate here. We're just going to have you start the process uh, in your home countries and stay there and, and we'll continue getting back to you because we weren't necessarily that good at uh, uh, processing these applications to begin with, right? So it's funny because I wish I, I wish I had saved the clip, but there was a clip, what, like weeks ago where they're asking him, okay, so you're elected, it's a Democrat. Like, don't you think that everyone will, will try to come to the U.S.? And he's like, no, I'm not that nice. The perception of you that got you elected as a moral, decent man is the reason why a lot of immigrants are coming to this country and entrusting you with unaccompanied minors. 
How do you resolve that tension? And how are you choosing which families can stay and which can, can go, given the fact that even though with Title 42, there are some families that are staying, and is there a timeline for when we won't be seeing these overcrowded facilities with, run by CPB when it comes to unaccompanied minors? Well, look, I guess I should be flattered people are coming because I'm the nice guy. That's the reason why it's happening, that I'm a decent man or however it's phrased. That, you know, that's why they're coming, because no, Biden's a good guy. Truth of the matter is, nothing has changed. I'm not, I'm not that nice to, like, encourage more people to come to this country. And it, it's funny because, one, he often says, like, such, like, out there things that have nothing to do the, with the conversation. Um, two, he's essentially saying this, the same thing as, as Trump, right? Like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not softer or I'm not nicer. Um, and, and just like wanted to make a, a point of that. And so there are two, there are different categories. This proposal tends to focus more on the asylum seekers and, and Central America because their countries are in terrible conditions. And so they, they are likely to migrate, right? Um, it doesn't include much about like internal enforcement. Um, so it doesn't, it will not do anything with, uh, it won't address ICE, it won't address, so for example, people that, ha people that are mostly from Mexico that are undocumented, they've, I think it's like 75%, like the, the vast majority, they've been here for over a decade and they're in mixed status families where some members are, are legal and, and some are not. It doesn't mention anything with the interior enforcement because I think the same, the same practices would continue, right? Where if you get pulled over by police, ever, after 9-11, they put in place all these like, local policing programs. So they're, it's so precarious. Like, if somehow you, you get pulled over by, I mean, here in New York City, which is a sanctuary city also, um, there's an undocumented immigrant with, the fa with his family, his wife and his children, who were legal, who were citizens. And he was delivering pizza. I don't know if you ever saw this. He was delivering pizza and like, they arrested him because he didn't have an ID. And he went to detention. So the proposal fo focuses a lot on Central America, but it doesn't mention what's going to happen with the population here that's undocumented right it, the only thing that we know is that the young people the daca right the dreamers like they would be immediately eligible but what about their parents what about you know we have like 11 million undocumented people in in the u.s that are working that are you know, sustaining their families. And I think that, yeah, that, that's something that's like not addressed very in, in much detail in this proposal. Yeah, the, we're starting to kind of get into it already, but unfortunately there is a lot in this proposal where like things are missing, right? Um, I think some of the things that stuck mm -hmm. out to me that are kind of the most 
ridiculous. So like there's a number of things here where, um, especially one thing you point out in your article is that there is, um, even though Biden's proposal recognizes a unilateral approach is insufficient, it fails to include Mexico. Could you elaborate a little bit on the failure to include um, Mexico, which is like a, a major trading partner from the United States, uh, part of the failed NAFTA agreements, and now the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreements, it's in the damn name. Uh, but elaborate on this mm-hmm. other major gap in this Biden proposal here. It's never happened. It's never, I mean, that's why when I first started reading this, I so it's 353 pages long and I read the whole thing because I kept waiting <laughs> to get to the Mexico part of, uh, there are camps. Those camps are still there along the border where people are, are, are waiting, right? Like the administrations are transitioning. So they're, they're waiting. They're hoping to be able to apply for asylum. Um, but it is very strange. It is completely out of the ordinary. Like this is not normal. <laughs> the, the, the U.S. and Mexico work together to, for optics mainly, right? Like for optics for an American audience. Like they, they want to put forth an image of collaboration and that they're being you know, like very thorough and and hard on like an enforcement of 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 like protecting the the border, right? Like it's it's become a symbol. It's a huge symbol on the status, right? Like on, on like it almost can be used as, as a way to like illustrate, visualize America's power. And that it's not in there, it was very unsettling for me. And, and that's when, I mean, that's one of the first things that I was like, okay, well, then it's definitely, like, this is definitely not going to, to pass. Um, and, there's some, and there's some drama there. I mean, usually when a Democratic president is elected, there's some activities that happen with the, with the president of Mexico. AMRO didn't call the Biden administration and, uh, until last month or something. But again, like that's so, so, so weird and, and out, of, um, out of the norms that have been established between both countries. Because again, it, it's sort of, it, it's like an interdependent thing, right? Or it's like a codependent relationship, I guess, where they both have to front this image of of a safe border of a safe border you know with all the technology and and all these resources to to enforce the movement of 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 people and like of drugs and yeah yeah and that's where like i think a lot of this comes in cuz from the voters democrats and republicans this always ends up being an issue of making sure our border is secure because that's like has a strong mm-hmm. ethos behind it. Um, understandably, like everyone likes the idea of security and protection. There's no one, I think, arguing with that. But it comes towards, I mean, never mind the issue that I think we'll get into a moment where like with increased 
um, militarization as we're talking about even in a lot yeah, of other contexts where, where, where like you get that um that also means like an increased technological surveillance state that's happening yeah and in, in potentially in place of any immigration measures that could be advertised as uh being better than um this oh, like over policing we're having when in reality it's just like another yeah. layer of over policing um you have like an expansion in general of this um like policy because if we're going to be having yeah, we have an overexpansion of, um, sorry, you have an expansion of these federal agencies like Department of Homeland Security potentially into these other countries now who will have processing stations who will be handling these immigration issues. I mean, I don't think the solution here is more of like militarization at our border when the, the issue surrounding drugs getting into the border, uh, guns getting into the border have more to do with uh, American aspects of supply and demand that should be addressed as opposed to like something that is just like being fueled into the United States. Right. Yes. I mean, <laughs> you said it so perfectly. I don't, I don't know why I'm here. Um, <laughs> no, cause you're actually way more, no. you're way better at this. <laughs> for sure. So, I mean, there's been, the border's been militarized over decades now. So, they, I mean, they have military equipment. They have, you know, the latest in surveillance because it's it's been an issue that that Homeland Security has talked about. Like, how do we patrol the border without necessarily like sending people, sending our border patrol agents into dangerous spaces, right? And and it's two thousand miles long, and it's the hardest. Uh, difficult it's it's extremely difficult to to make that um trip so they've you know they've talked about like drones they've talked about it's it's very much like dystopian because it it solved infrastructure that was meant for the military for for war and i i want to emphasize that like you know the the immigration problem, as they say, is is mainly so undocumented people here that have been here again for at least for at least ten years. It's usually it's more than that, um, but they and I'm including myself. We crossed the border legally, like we didn't break any laws. Like we showed our our visa, right, and then our passport, and when it was time to go. I, I just, I just didn't go, but essentially like we were, it's like 70% visa overstayers. The government has known this. The federal government has known this. I mean, at least, at least we're like, there's proof is, you know, during the Bill Clinton administration, but I, this is political, right? This is politics. And in politics, you're not necessarily talking about facts you're you're not discussing facts you're very much like engaging and speaking to a story to a narrative that exists right so the story of the border right and then that it has to be safe and, and people get riled up who have never even seen it or been there um that that's a story like that's a manufactured story that's not real. 
And I think the more we have, it was really elegantly put there, um, but I think the more we have these kinds of um, stories that these politicians continue feeding into, the further and further away we get from the real history here, which is something they never want to address, which is that <clears throat> the conditions which people are running away from or escaping from are the direct result of political and economic decisions on a foreign policy level made by the United States in many, if not mm-hmm. all of these cases. And um, the United States already doesn't even want to have the conversation around giving reparations towards indigenous Americans or black Americans. So uh, of course, they're not going to talk about uh, international foreign policy kind of reparations to these countries other than these, you know, um, after school programs, which, you know, I mean, as an American, we'd love to have some of those here too. But um, it's seeming like beyond any of these little like band-aid sort of solutions here. Do you really think that it is within the American political consciousness, save some like larger um, awakening around the injustices of these issues to actually come up with a policy that addresses these larger issues? The fact that um, the, 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 the deep historical roots essentially of what is causing people to come with their families and come to the United States. Right. Right. So I, I will say that when root cause, when I saw that root causes was the focal point of, of the proposal, um, I was really surprised because that phrase has been there before, but in the back as a footnote or an appendix or something. Um, I think people have organized and really, really pushed hard for this. And that's why we have root causes at, at the center of, of this bill. <sighs> that said, it's, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult, I think, because, I mean, there, what's, what are the changes in rhetoric? If you look at, you know, Bill Clinton and and Obama and Biden, I mean, they're all going to say very similar things um, to the Republicans. Like they still talk about law and order. They still talk. I mean, the bill starts off with like how to earn citizenship. So this is all on on this language of deservedness and and merit. Hmm. Because that helps them enforce uh, enforce their their narrative, right? On on being not being soft, on like being hard on like enforcing these law and order rules, which are which are very deceiving. Because if you're from Europe, there's a process of like you can petition like you get a visa and you can travel to the United States. In in Mexico, that's not really the case. So because there is work here and because even like employers reach out, that's why undocumented people are are here. Yeah, I think it's gonna maybe that and that kind of segues I think into the potential future for where this is going towards. Um, Something that 
this proposal addresses, but also dances around, is the fact that um, a major aspect of this shared economy, if you will, with North America, Canada included, is um, farm work from Central Americans and the need for labor protections for that like sort of group and population. Um, essentially, the also the statistic you point out where two-thirds of essential workers in the United States were undocumented. So I think mm-hmm. this bill sort of seems to address that, which also kind of parallels with a larger labor struggle that seems to be rising on the left. Um, there's obviously the thing with Amazon where uh, the Bessemer workers tried and hopefully lost their unionization effort, kind of showing the... Uh, uphill battle against the powers that be that definitely exists right now with these things. But um, Mm -hmm. I I guess like going forward, what do you think could be some of the opportunities that might exist for these workers to, if at all possible, exercise leverage and strength in numbers to potentially get better protections, better support, any of these things? And um, how much of that support will also need to come externally from allies, from other people who like um, understand the economic connections that are um, bound here mm-hmm. by people, not necessarily by, um, you know, uh, international trade policies. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let let's talk about um, let's talk about this in the context of the COVID world we're living in. Um, I think. Unfortunately, I, I I know COVID has been awful, and it's predominantly been people of color who have who who comprise that huge death toll from from this virus. Um, I think it it shows. I think it, it presents like a, a window for us to push for these things, for us to push for labor labor protections for essential workers, right? So if, if I were to guess like what's going to happen, um, because this is, I, I, I doubt it will go through. If I, if I were to guess, I would guess that they're going to propose, they're going to propose three different bills. One for the dreamers, one for the farm uh, agriculture sector, and and the the last for essential workers, and so they're going to try to categorize uh, things and and protections and sort of like create a hierarchy, right? Of, of who's who's better off and and who has some level, more levels of protection. And again, this is within the. We've spoken about the LPI status where it's not exactly like you have any political uh, voice to use. So I think we, I think that's going to be proposed at some point, And I think we should be prepared to, to speak, um, to speak on that and, and to organize around that because it, it must, right? Like it, that's what being an ally is and, and people without documents are, I mean, it's, it's scary. It's, it's very, very stressful. And it's something that you feel every day. Even I I was a a teenager 
and I felt like this little black cloud over me like every day uh, all the time because you just you you know that at any moment like you're you're just snatched away and sent back home and yeah and so it has to yeah it has to be us who can who can make calls who can educate people who can organize locally and and so forth i i, I i'm sorry go ahead no no i i the, the first thing is like skype things make it kind of like difficult to sort of like speak sometimes but i want to just like sort of like um uh, appreciate you for speaking about the need to like support undocumented folks not only just like speaking about the need to but also speaking about like i like, can tell lies like your personal um raw experience about trying to trying to live like take out the american dream trope out of it but it's like trying to like live your life and accomplish your life to the fullest regardless of whatever kind of like system or like plot of land you're living on and um knowing that constant fear that at any moment it can be like sort of taken away but like violent measures of some kind um it's just like not a way we should be able to tolerate humanly and then when you throw in the fact that like um these are folks that our economy very much relies on they participate legally in the system they pay taxes all these other different things um then the layers and the rhetoric which i think you like so much like emphasized and rightly so stated so much of the rhetoric that goes towards seeing um and other there when these are really just other shades of the working class and people that are working together against yeah. these larger structures um i think it helps with this recontextualizing and thinking of the immigration issue that um i know that i was my goal with having this sort of segment and doing this and i know is very key to a lot of your work as well um and i think especially for the education work people i encourage folks in the audience to check out your jacobin article and um also your continued works which can be found um on your twitter at carry in brooklyn right yes um yeah yeah twitter carry in brooklyn k a r y uh but we are are we are we finished no. i'm like wait <laughs> i mean i was about to wrap up but absolutely if there's anything else you want to kind of get out or express i definitely want to give you the space to do that as well mm i just want to add to this the same point on on deservedness i think and this, this is my impression in, in new york city i think people are 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 working from zoom right like they're working remotely and i i think they've opened and and are accepting of of the reality that the person who's delivering their postmates is probably someone who is undocumented um but i still feel this uh this is what we have to work on i i feel like there's still a, a like an underlying uh, foundation that that still set, that still informs you of like these social hierarchies and and who is inferior right like who has power and who i i think the, a lot of these essential workers who are undocumented have done i mean have done incredible things and and they're still looked on 
as if they were inferior humans. And I think, you know, we should challenge, we should challenge that, um, especially among our own party, right? Especially among liberals, people who would say that they are part of the Democratic Party. I think that's really well said. Um, there are so many opportunities in society for uh, an other to be created in a lot of different cases, especially class-wise, especially like you were saying, in this world where there's um, a new class of people who can work their jobs from home and people who are serving mm-hmm. the people who are working their jobs from home. Um, yeah, I think it's important to kind of see and understand that there's more solidarity to be had with um, all of us, everyone as fellow workers than than what meets the eye and right. then uh, is the kind of rhetoric that's put out there that's meant to intentionally divide us. And to also, yeah, look within, not assume yeah. that in the Democratic Party, oh, we're all liberals, we're doing great. Um, I saw a lot of people, like California is an example. We saw a lot of people here who donated directly against, uh, or like who voted directly against against the idea that uh, gig workers, mainly these folks who are undocumented, should be able to get some of the same um, rights and treatments as they would be if they were having working a full part-time or full-time uh, job. Uh, that was Prop 22, right. um, the rideshare thing that uh, they spent a lot of money and all the liberals in California voted in favor of giving the rideshare companies this unlimited power to literally create a subclass of workers in the economy. Now, not to keep like belaboring this going on, but I think that's just like a very concrete example no, but of that's, like what you're talking about. That's my concern. The way that they will break up th- these categories and, and instead of really passing comprehensive reform, the easiest way to, to get us is just use, you know, they already know how to do this, right? Like they know what language to use. They know how to justify it. And if we don't challenge that narrative, then we are going to end up with these different fragmented piecemeal legislation that is not, that's not truly helping uh, workers or like the economy, right? Um, yeah, that's that's one of my biggest concerns that I think we need to spend time on and and prepare. Yeah, um, 100%. Uh, once again, where can folks find you and keep up with your work? Uh, you come up with all these like really good um, takes and ways of viewing the world. And so I know I'll definitely be um, following you on Twitter to make sure I'm up to date with all of your newest ways and opinions. But uh, let the folks again in the audience know where they can find you. Thank you. So I am on Twitter at Gary, which is K-A-R-Y, in Brooklyn, because I live in Brooklyn. Yes, I, I, I got to go to Brooklyn for the first time um, shortly before the pandemic started. In fact, actually two years ago, before 2018 or so. And um, I really loved it when I was there in Bed-Stuy. I, I can't wait to go back. Hopefully it's not too horribly gentrified. Yes, back. you have... <laughs> Housing is awful here. Like the whole city is going through like 13 different crises. But <laughs> you have to call me and let me know when you're visiting so we can hang out. <laughs> <laughs>